0: All right, we've come to Colossians two seventeen, but I'm going to begin at verse 16 for today's presentation. So as we look at the text, let's follow along as we read the words of the Apostle. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, we have suggested in our previous study that the language of verse 16, food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath day, that this language is the vocabulary of Old Testament Jewish ceremonial ritual. It is the language of religious symbols. Now, verse 17, if you will note, is proof positive that we have interpreted these words of verse 16 correctly. Verse 17 tells us each of the elements in verse 16 is shadowy. They are symbolic and temporary, fleeting and transient as shadows are. Not substantive and permanent, not substantive and permanent embodiments. And here I am playing upon the literal Greek word for substance, which is used there in that 17th verse. It is the Greek word soma, which means body. All right, each word of verse 16 points in a shadowy manner to the embodiment of the reality which the shadow symbolizes. Symbolism, which is embodied in the person and work of our Savior Jesus Christ, His embodied reality in finishing food and drink laws. He has put an end to them in his suffering in the flesh. His embodied reality in finishing festival observances and Old Testament festival rituals. He has put an end to them, having endured in the flesh of his body. His embodied reality in establishing a permanent and lasting fresh new beginning for the people of God, not with the new moon of every new month, but with the finality of his own bodily death and resurrection. His embodied reality in finishing ceremonial and cultic Sabbaths so that weekly and eschatological Sabbaths may remain. Or would you rather have the shadow of your child or your grandchild or the full-bodied reality of a hug from your child or your grandchild? Shadows don't give hugs. Or what would you rather have? The shadow of your husband or wife or the full-bodied reality of a hug from your spouse. The shadow gives you no hugs. The shadow is less than the reality. The Old Testament ceremonial rituals and symbols are less than the reality. They are always on the downside of the real substance of what they indicated. And that real substance is the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God. All of those Old Testament ceremonial rites must be seen from our point of view from the point of view of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus, from the point of view of the early Christian church in the book of Acts, they must all be seen from the standpoint of the finality of the Son of God's incarnation, death and resurrection. They promised better things. The better things have come. The promise is no longer necessary from them. Jesus brought us the reality in the body of his flesh. We cannot, we dare not, return to the shadows. We dare not return to the shadows without entering into the murky darkness, the shadowy aura of the former era, the era that is without the full-bodied presence And the Son of God in the flesh. This age of Christ Jesus is the age of fulfillment and liberation from these ceremonies and rituals and symbols. We are not bound by these shadowy symbols of the former time. The time of Christ has made all of these passe. For he is the body. Paul playing on soma, his body, the body of Christ, in the body of the flesh in which he's emphasized in this epistle. Is he doing that? Possibly, possibly emphatically underscoring the embodiment which Christ has brought to these <coughs> shadowy elements. He is the reality. He is the substance of all these symbols and ceremonial rites. He is the end of them. In his glorious incarnate person and his wondrous vicarious work, he substitutes for them and makes them passe. Now, the errorists of verse 16 the errorists who are describing the ongoing validity of these symbolic ritual ceremonial symbols. They are rejecting the passé paradigm, that is, the pattern of accomplishment, finality, and fulfillment in Christ Jesus. They're rejecting that pattern. They want the Colossian Christians to remain in the dark they want the colossian christians to remain in the shadows they want the colossian christians to be bound by that former era with its customs and rituals and symbols and jewish paraphernalia they want the earthly and the tangible ceremony they do not want the heavenly and intangible reality. And when you find even in modern New Testament Christianity a love for the ceremonial and the ritual, beware that they are taking you back into the dark shadows of the murky, unfulfilled era. Beware, beware of pomp and, pomp and circumstance. Beware of robes, robes and icons. Beware. The body and the substance that belongs to us. Not some symbolic ceremonial or ritual icon or symbol. It has no real substance. You are to worship in spirit and in truth. Not in rigmarole. And that includes modern praise band rigmarole. These errorists behind verse 16 are not only disagreeing with what the Apostle is saying here, they're advancing a counter-narrative. They've got a different story. They've got a counter-narrative to the dramatic in the risen Christ narrative, which Paul himself has experienced and which the Apostle is proclaiming, the narrative that he is preaching, writing about here, which we went over in detail in Lecture 16 of this series, Paul commends, commands the Colossians, commands us, commands all in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, commands all of Christians to have no man judge or condemn us for not doing these Old Testament symbolic things. Let no man judge you when you do not participate in these things because you have wondrously, by grace through faith, participated in the substantial reality of the body of Christ. Incarnate, dead, resurrected, and glorified. If you want reality, there it is. If you want real substance, there it is. If you want real soma, body, there it is. Glorified and seated at the right hand of the glory on high, and you have been joined to that reality by grace through faith in that Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the use of the imperative there in verse 16, let no one, that's an imperative. The use of the imperative there, which is in fact an adversative imperative, it's a very... Strong adversative imperative, let no one judge you. That strong imperative triggers our attention to a structural pattern in this unit, verses 16 to 23. Now, I want you to scan these verses and see if you find the structural pattern. I've given you a clue already through the grammatical form, namely the imperative the very strong adversative imperative in verse 16. Not holding fast. Not holding fast. Not quite. It's actually not an imperative. It is a negative, but the negative is in the post-positive position here, which means it's second in the Greek text.
1: Even as it's second
0: there in your English text. But that's that's an indication that it is not, it's not an imperative as as well as it's not in the emphatic adversative position in the verse. Very good. Virtually a duplication of the phrase in 16, right? Let no one. And that is an adversative imperative. That is the negative stands first in the verse, in the line of the verse. And the imperative comes after it. That's correct, so we have 16 and 17, we have 18 and what goes with it, Randy? What goes with verse 18? You were just talking about it a little bit ago. Yes, verse 19 goes with verse 18. It's continuous with the imperative in verse 18. Any more imperatives? Very good. Verse 21 has a series of adversative imperatives and it is attached to verse 20. So what we come up, excuse me, what we come up with on the basis of Paul's grammar. And in fact, the way he writes these verses, he puts the negative first in verse 16, puts the negative first in verse 18. Puts the negative first in verse 20. Then after the negative in verse 16, an imperative. After the negative in verse 18, an imperative. After the negative in verse 20, an imperative. Not, notice it, not emphatically, jumps out at you from the Greek text. Not judge, not keep, not handle, not taste, not touch. All right, now, this grammatical pattern is behind a structural pattern. And we've seen it as we've uh, mapped out how these adversative imperatives flow, flow from 16 to 23. Verses 16 and 17 are an imperative or a structural unit. Verses 18 and 19 are an imperative or structural unit. Verses 20 to 23 are an imperative or structural unit, even though the imperative comes in the second verse of that unit. All right, now. We've already identified the kind of error that is being rejected in verse 16 and 17. We've talked about the provenance or the background to the group That is bringing that objection into the Colossian church. And what is their background? What have we said? Jewish. It is a Jewish ceremonialism. A Jewish ritualism. All right. So we have identified in detail the uh, group behind the imperative in 16 and 17. Now... How about verses 18 and 19? Or are they all the same? Are all three of these units, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 to 23, are they all about the same group? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, let's hold off on an answer to that right now. This is, <clears throat> so it's up for grabs, but let's ask What about verses 18 and 19? Is that a group which is different from the group in verses 16 and 17? Partially, perhaps. Partially, perhaps. What are you thinking, Randy? Are you suggesting that 18 and 19 are ascetic? It does say that. Yeah, but not in 18 and 19. What's the key to identifying the background of the error or the background of the group in 18 and 19? What are the key words in those two verses? No. No? That's same as 16. Go ahead, Ben. Yes, worshiping angels, whatever that means. So we'll hold on to that for a moment. Any other thing there? Right before
1: that, it says asceticism. insisting on asceticism and worship of angels.
0: Aha, your translation says asceticism? Yeah. Ah, that's the problem. That's The problem is with the translation. Okay. 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 <laughs> this is the yeah, that, yeah that, that's taking liberties with the Greek word here. It means self-abasement, which is what the New American Standard reads. All right, well, we'll leave that aside. Same thing, isn't it? The, pardon?
1: Staticism, self-abasement, same thing, or self-denial.
0: Yeah, see, see this, this, is a, a, this is an arrogant demonstration of a higher spiritual state. It doesn't have anything to do with denying what you're doing. But when you want to look at asceticism, you look at verse 20. That's, a, that's, that's a, an element in the next group. But not in this second group. Okay? What's the other thing that, that identifies them, sets them apart? Worshipping of angels. What else? Visions. Visions. Yes. Visions. Alright, now. Is this a Jewish or a Gentile group? Let's identify the provenance of this group of errorists. They're coming into the Colossian church, church that's meeting in Philemon's house. They're coming into that church. They're advancing a, a teaching or a doctrine which has to do with worshiping angels and visions. What's the background to that? Where do they come from? What, what, what? Provenance, what ethnic background or what cultural background? Where are they coming from? They're pagan. Are they pagan, Terry? Pagans worship angels. Pagans even believe in angels. No, no, this isn't paganism. Pagans don't believe in angels. They may believe in evil and good and spirits, but they don't believe in angels, angelic beings. Who does? The Jews. This is another Jewish group, isn't it? Or is it? Worshipping angels? So once again, we've got a grammatical issue here. And the Greek is a little ambiguous, so we've got some options to think about. The Gentiles, or the pagan Gentiles, have no interest in angels. So we're back to a Jewish group, a second kind of Judaism, which advocates visions and worshiping angels. But as I pointed out, worshiping angels doesn't sound like Judaism. Why not? What's the Shema? Shema O Israel. The Lord is God, there is one there is one Lord and the Lord is one. Okay, the Lord is God and the Lord is one from Deuteronomy 4. So they're not worshiping angels in the sense that the angels are the object of their worship. Well, then what does Paul mean here? Worshiping of angels is literally the way it is. All right, combine it with the vision, the idea of visions. What is this Jewish group doing? They're inviting the Colossian Christians to join in the worshiping liturgy of the angelic host through visions of mystical or ethereal glory. Now, this is the most difficult part of this section to, to, to decide where you land. So I'm I'm landing uh, where I have come to my own conclusion about it. And you're not bound by that. But this is a hot, hot debated verse. This phrase is hotly debated. You see, what we're describing here is a kind of mystical Judaism. A mystical Judaism which is present in some of the intertestamental Jewish tracts and volumes is definitely present in Josephus in the first century, in first century Judaism, Judaism contemporary with Christ and the Apostles. A Judaism which projects itself into the heavenly arena through visions of angels, worshiping before the throne of God. Well, is it true that the angels in heaven are worshiping before the throne of God? Yes. That is true. In fact, it is. <clears throat> is it true that they have a liturgy? That is, they go through a service of worship or a type of form of worship. Revelation. Do they sing a hymn? Revelation. Yes, Revelation has them singing hymns. What are they singing? What's the hymn that the angels are singing around the throne? No, they're not singing holy, 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 although they may be, that it's not in Revelation. That's in Isaiah 6. Right. Honor, glory, and yeah, What? how does that begin? All you fans of Handel's Messiah. Mm-hmm. No, how, all you hands of, fans of Handel's Lord Messiah. Of no, 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 right, no. Revelation 5. In Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. All right, <clears throat> so... There is a liturgical worship, and I say liturgical, that is there's a form of worship that the angels use in response to God's glory, and it is recorded in Revelation 5. And I shouldn't omit holy, holy, holy in Isaiah 6, but this group which is trying to undermine the Colossian. Congregation, or trying to influence the congregation, is describing a visionary reality that is better, better than the reality of the mediatorial work of the risen Christ. In other words, this is not an ascetic movement. This is a mystical movement. This is not a movement of denial. This is a movement of saying, you haven't made it really if all you believe is in the risen Jesus. The real Jesus is the Jesus who is adored by these saints and we've had, these angels, and we've had visions of them and ourselves in this mystical arena marching along with them before the throne of the risen Jesus. All of which is subtracting attention from the risen Christ himself and placing mystical attention upon these angelic throngs. The angels would be embarrassed by this. The angels would be horrified by this. The angels would be saying, not us, but him. Not us, but the glorious King of Kings, the Son of God, the glorified Son of the Most High. You're Away with your visions of putting us between the throne and Christ. We, marching, worshiping, worshiping. Singing, praising, angelic hosts. Alright, now, <clears throat> that is the only thing that makes sense to me with respect to this section, these, these intruders in verses 18 and 19. That's the only thing that makes sense to me, even though it is a little bit nebulous because there's not a whole lot of original primary documentation. However, there is a major dissertation on this verse and what is behind it by an Australian, a student of P.T. O'Brien, who is another respectable conservative commentator, New Testament commentator. His name is Ian Smith, and he wrote a book called Heavenly Perspective, Paul's Response to a Jewish Mystical Movement at Colossae. Notice the title of the book. Paul's response to a Jewish mystical movement at Colossae. He's on the right track. He's not right about everything. This is my opinion. He's on the right track. But I think there's more to this visionary part of it than he allows. Nonetheless, there's something here that we don't know from any other source. But it's not concretely in the, what I mean any other source in the New Testament. This is a unique element. Because it is a unique form of Judaism. Now, mystical Judaism became very popular in the Middle Ages. And it still has a mystique in certain Jewish circles. But nonetheless, <clears throat> trying to trace back its roots you know paul here may be revealing its roots its roots are in the first century ad or even what the first century ad draws from the intertestamental jewish period in any event this jewish mysticism is not based on any revelation from god it is based on the traditions and uh and and, and esoteric ideas or mystical ideas of pious Jews. Are those in the apocryphal books? There are some uh, <clears throat> remarks in apocryphal books, like the Testament of Abraham, and so on. There are some some, some uh, incidental remarks about this, about worshiping angels or worshiping in the angelic train, worshiping with the angels in their worshiping train. Yes, Ben. Correct. Right. I've supplied visions along with them. I mean, I'm, I'm satisfied. What you have seen. Well, what have you seen? Well, you're obviously seeing visions. You're seeing things. You're seeing these angels in some way, in some mystical way, some ethereal way, which is drawing you away from seeing Christ at the center of the plan of salvation. <clears throat> what verse 16 does is diminish the centrality of Christ. Okay, the Jewish ceremonialism which is being introduced or, or, or tried to be introduced into the culture, it's going to take them away from Christ. Okay, this is doing the same thing, but it's, a, it's of a different order. There, there it was tangible ceremonial rituals, things that you could touch and handle and feel. Here, it's mystical. You can't really touch it or, or lay it. You have to trust that these people are telling you the truth about their visions. Very much like charismatic people, you have to believe that they're telling you the truth about their visions. Well, if visions have ceased, then they're not telling you the truth. <laughs> or, or if visions have, or, or if visions have ceased, then it's their fertile spiritual imagination. I'm not, not minimizing the charismatic Christian testimony. I'm simply saying we don't agree with the continuing notion of visions of glory or visions of God or even revelations coming from God, which they also advocate. Those things have ceased. Those, have, those things have passed away with the apostolic age. At any rate, that's the most likely explanation for this difficult uh, <clears throat> group of people here. It's a, it's a form of Jewish mysticism as verse 16 and 17 is a form of Jewish ritualism. Okay, any questions? Any further questions? Go ahead, Randy. What words do we use or terms do we use to
1: distinguish these two ages besides the New Covenant and Old Covenant? Apostolic age, patriarchal age, is there another term? that
0: Promise and fulfillment. The age of the promise in the Old Testament, the age of the fulfillment of the promise in the New Testament.
1: Why is, is it strictly because of the presuppositions of the dispensationalists that covenant folks are unwilling to use the word dispensation with respect to these different times?
0: Well, it's because the dispensation, the classic dispensationalists, assigns salvation to a different method of God's dealing with his people. And that is un, that, that's unacceptable. If you're using dispensation with respect to the administration of the covenant under the Old or the New Testament, that's fairly neutral. But if you're using it in the dispensational sense that God is testing man with respect to a certain kind of obedience, that's an altogether different matter. That's a a heterosoteric matter. That's a different salvation matter. To to
1: interpret (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4 with the word dispensation is not unfair as long as you don't use the overarching dispensational... Theology.
0: Yes, so as long as you're not using the Schofield definition of dispensation, which is the traditional definition of all, also of Dallas Theological Seminary historical.
1: So one dispensation would be this, pop, one or two hundred years after Christ, and then now we're in a different dispensation.
0: Uh, well, is that fair? From, the New, from the New Testament standpoint, there would only be two administrations of the plan of salvation the Old Testament administration and the New Testament administration. If we're saying dispensation equals administration, or how God administers his saving grace, it's administered in the Old Testament uh, through symbols and ceremonies and rituals and shadows. It's administered in the New Testament through the body and the substance and the reality. So
1: how do we distinguish between the time of visions of the apostolic age to now when we don't have visions?
0: They're part of that New Testament uh, fulfillment. And when the New Testament... What
1: makes it different from the year 100 AD to now?
0: The fact that divisions have ceased? Yes, that part. Prophecy has ceased? Right. That's 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 over. That was something that was intended for the, the apostolic age. You could say, as you have said, the first hundred years, well, we're...
1: So we could call that a dispensation and differ from the dispensation we're in right now.
0: I I wouldn't do that. I would say it it is a factor of the uh, New Testament dispensation, visions and prophecy and miraculous gifts. But it was a temporary feature of that era, of that dispensation, of that administration. It wasn't intended to be permanent, it was only intended to ground and authenticate that dispensation or administration.
1: Okay, and also then there's the passage quoted from Joel in Acts. Your
0: your uh Yeah, young man, so dream dreams and your Yeah, how do you fit that in? The way that the way the book of Acts chapter two does it. It's fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost.
1: So that's not talking about any
0: future time? Not know. in my opinion. I don't think in the opinion of the writer it is, either. Okay. He says, this is that. This that you see at Pentecost is that that Joel prophesied. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Now we come to verses 20 to 23, which we have already concluded represent a distinct adversative Group from the emphatic negatives in verse 21. This is the third group of errorists threatening to undermine the church at Colossae. Now we're going to ask the same question that we've asked before. What is the key to their identity? What language or what wording do you see here in verses 20 to 23? That would indicate that they have a distinct provenance or distinct origin.
1: I ain't even jumping in this one. I'm not going to say anything. I'm scared. Well, do I have a
0: okay. Uh, but where is it coming from? Is, is that Judaism, Marge? What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say the word is decrees, and it sounds like a lot of the laws. Yeah, but decrees with respect to what things, though? Yes, don't touch, don't handle, ascetic things. <clears throat> but what are the what are the terms that will identify this group? Very good. The elementary principles is one. elementary principles of the world. Where have we seen that before? Greek. True. But where have we seen that before in this epistle? Glance your eye back up to verse 8. And there it is. Now, um, don't want to forget verse 8, but We talked about this phrase in Lecture 13 of this series, and what did we conclude? Well, we concluded that they are principles dedicated to the exploration and influence of this world, the horizontal element, the world of the earthly and linear dimension. Is this a Jewish group? I don't think so. What are they then? Where are they coming from? what's their background? If it's not Jewish it's I think Greek. it's Gentile or Greek or Greco-Roman yes <clears throat> now how do we know that? Well we actually have a strong clue that relates between verse 8 and 20 and verse 8 and 23. There's a word in verse 23 which is implied or part of a word in verse 8. Can you guess what that is? You have to remember what the word in verse 8 means when you break it apart. This is right up your alley, Randy. What's that word in verse 8?
1: The elements of the universe, like... No, warfare. you're, you're,
0: you're, you're fond of this discipline. You talk about this. It's a philosophy. 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 What's philosophy mean? In fact, that's a compound word, isn't it? What's that mean? Love of knowledge. Love of wisdom. 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 And what do you got in verse 23? Wisdom. 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 Yes. yes. <laughs> Alright, so, there's an, a, there's a definite relationship between the things that Paul's describing in verse 8 Love of wisdom and the elementary principles of the world and verses 20 to 23 where he mentions and again the elementary principles of the world and wisdom in verse 23. This group is Gentile. It is pagan Gentile. It is a group which is introducing Gentile paganism with its horizontal pursuit of worldly wisdom, worldly values, and worldly outcomes. Paganism has a lust for the elementary principles of worldly wisdom, philosophy, if you will, with paganism's disgust for the heavenly principles of gospel Christ-centered wisdom. All right, so in summary, Paul is addressing threats to the Colossian Christians that are coming from three groups. The first group is committed to Jewish ceremonialism, verses 16 and 17. The second group is committed to Jewish mysticism, verses 18 to 19. And the final group is committed to Gentile paganism, verses 20 to 23. The asceticism that you'll notice there in verse 21, Jewish ceremonialism or Jewish ritualism, Jewish mysticism and Gentile paganism. The asceticism there is the asceticism of paganism. In other words, uh, superstition where uh, you believe that if you don't touch, handle, or feel certain things, that, that, that leaves you pure for the gods. But let's summarize where we are in this discussion uh, as a whole. We've com- completed an analysis of, of the three units of this section, and identified the background behind these threats, <clears throat> let's go back then to verse 16 and that word, therefore. Therefore, ties verse 16 to verses 13 to 15. And when we examined those three verses, 13 to 15, we described a rich narrative reflection on the biographical character of Christ's vicarious and substitutionary work on our behalf, instead of us, in our stead or in our place. And the narrative interface between Christ's narrative biography and the Apostle Paul's narrative biography by the almighty power of God, whom he has folded into, drawn into the narrative of Christ's performance and accomplishment, such that the apostle's life is hidden with Christ in God, a phrase that he's going to use in the very next chapter. But let's not forget what 13 to 15 has identified. It has identified the apostle's biography in relationship to Christ's own biography, a redemptive historical biography which brings him into union with a vicarious redeemer. Now, all of these three groups are trying to take him out of that paradigm. All of these three groups are against that paradigm. All of these three groups are substituting something else for the vicarious, redemptive, historical paradigm of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God. Whether it's ceremonialism, whether it's mysticism, whether it's pagan horizontalism, they're all saying, no, 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 no. We've got the more excellent way. We've got the better way. If you want religious performance, you need to observe these ritual ceremonies. If you want religious ideals, you must have visions of angelic worship and liturgy and join in that in a visionary style. You must have a mystical experience. If you want to be accepted in our culture, you have to have these horizontal uh, (coughs) pagan elementary principles, forces of this world And the love of the world, love of the philosophy or the wisdom of this world. Each one of those elements is taking them away from the central core of the apostles gospel. Now, this pattern by which something else is introduced into the gospel sufficiency and finality of Jesus Christ doesn't stop with Paul's epistle to the Colossians. It doesn't stop with the apostolic age. It doesn't stop with the era of the apostles. It doesn't stop in church history all through the ages. There is always a group within the church that even pretends to be Christian that is trying to put something else in the way. Whether it's good works on top of grace Whether it's performance in a particular way, whether it's ritual matters, whether it's sacramental matters, they're always trying to put something else in the way of a true and proper Christianity. And this is what the Apostle is getting at, particularly in verse 18. He is getting at this tendency of these groups that have other ideas about what higher Christianity means, a higher Christian life a more advanced Christian uh, piety. <clears throat> the apostle notes that, the, <clears throat> that this self-abasement is the abasement or humility of pious frauds. There is no such thing as vi- mystical visions of praying angels. <clears throat> That's not a valid form of a religious belief or a Christian belief. <clears throat> They're actually arrogant, these people, with these mystical visions. They're full of themselves. They have narcissistic, inflated egos. Well, I've got a greater vision. I've got a greater experience. I've had a mystical uh, revelation. I'm part of a mystical chorus. Look at me. As he says in those two verses, they're possessed of a fleshly mind, a mind which is indulging the sins of the flesh, because, it's course, very popular, very uh, pop, uh, popular to be very super pious and at the same time corrupt and morally deficient. How many times do we see this in Christian superstars? These people who parade their piety and their folded hands and their their apparent real holier-than-thou demeanor. And in fact, we find out that they're abusers and they're adulterers and they're fornicators, and they're drunkards. How many times have we been disappointed with people within the Christian community who put themselves up on a pedestal or have sought the spotlight? As if God says, you want the spotlight, I'll give you the spotlight, and it'll see every wart in your personality, including your fraudulent personality. This is what Paul is getting at here. These egocentric, mystical people who are coming into that congregation talking about how they are the way of the future, how they are the way forward in terms of devotion and piety. They do not hold the head, verse 19. Who's the head? The head is Christ. They're taking the people away from their union with Christ. They're talking about a substitute Christianity, a counterfeit Christianity. Yes, it sounds very impressive revelations, visions, mystical encounters, wowie-zowie. And yet, there is no substance to it at all. It is simply the projection of the personality of the individual, the projection of the self-centered spirituality of of the individual. It is a projection which is intended to make those around them feel as if they're missing something. Well, There's another phrase here in verse 19 that I want to comment briefly on. You notice the last few words of that verse. They do not hold fast ahead, the beginning of that verse. And they are not growing with a growth which is from God. They're not maturing or growing with a growth which is from God. And in the next line, if you have died with Christ, growing from God includes dying with Christ. Is he saying that Christ is God? Is he equating the two proper nouns there, theos and Christos, in a way of underscoring the deity of our Lord Jesus? I'm not going to push it too hard, but it is a fascinating indirect reflection upon the God, the godness of the Son of God, the godness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, of course, is absolutely essential to our Christian faith. All right, now in verse 21, <clears throat> we have what Randy has already commented are ascetic mandates. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I'm not going to try to distinguish between handle and touch. I'm not sure what the apostle has in mind with the two different words he uses there. So for all intents and purposes, we'll regard it as somewhat synonymous. That doesn't mean I'm right about that, but I don't have any other answer to to propose. What is this? Well, we've already said that those in this section are dominated by the elementary principles of the world. They are worldly. So these ascetic uh, commandments, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste, these are worldly principles. And we know <clears throat> from uh, movements and from uh, cultic groups and actually from religions that pagan asceticism is a dominant factor in a world view, particularly in the religions of the East, Buddhist asceticism, Buddhist monasteries, monasteries of other Eastern religions, and even the monastic movement of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Monasticism is a kind of Christian asceticism, when it's in a Christian form, a Christian asceticism but it's not original with Christianity. There was asceticism and paganism long before there was asceticism in Christianity. Which raises the interesting question: Where did Christian monast- monasticism come from? Did it come from the influence of ancient paganism? Hmm. Mm. Randy, Plato? Plato? Yep. The body was evil. Well. Uh, Maybe, maybe not, but, you know, it, it's certainly worth uh, considering. <clears throat> Nonetheless, there is a generic paganism, uh, ascetic paganism of a uh, f- sacred caste of priests and priestesses who are separated from society and from the hoi polloi of, uh, of the population. <clears throat> Alright, now, this horizontal uh, <clears throat> asceticism is a council of despair. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a Carmelite nunnery or whether it's a Buddhist uh, monastery. It's a council of despair. You do not leave the sin outside that you carry with you inside, namely the sinful nature that you possess. It It doesn't drop off when you go through the gate, when you enter the door, when you enter the monastic cell. You carry it with you. And it is that which needs to be dealt with. It is that sinful nature which needs to be dealt with. And no, do not handle, do not touch, do not uh, taste. That's not going to stop the sinful nature. That doesn't control your desires. What controls your desires is your evil heart of unbelief, your evil inclinations, your depraved nature. We don't need any lessons in depraved nature these days. In 21st century America, we've got a lot of them. They're on the news every day. We know about depravity. It's carried with every sinful human being. And the only solution to it is not government programs. The solution to it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting, everybody running around and looking for answers. What is it that makes people do these things? And the answer is right there in the Bible, right before them. It's sin. Jesus says it's out of the heart to come murders and fornications and adultery. There it is. There's the answer. But they don't want the answer. The elementary principles of the world don't want to hear the answer. The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ and your need to be born again, regenerated by his saving and redeeming grace. It's that simple. It's not difficult. Bring them to Christ and they'll lay their weapons down. Bring them to Christ and they'll put away... All their hatred and animosity. Bring them to Christ and they'll stop abusing their wives and their children. Bring them to Christ and they'll shut off the pornography. Bring them to Christ. And they'll even stop going to casinos. Or at least they should. Because, of course, the casinos are legalized thieveries, stealing from people. Alright, right, so my point here is to recognize that there are not only religious temptations to add to and subtract from what Christ has fulfilled and completed, but there are also pagan and humanistic temptations, and they manifest themselves in every era of the church. We have to identify them, we have to be alert to them, we have to also distance ourselves from them, Although in some ways, as I said last time, it's becoming increasingly clear where the line between true Christianity and fake and counterfeit Christianity is being drawn. The Colossian Christians were threatened from three directions. How did they make out? We don't really know. We know that there was a Colossian church there still in the 4th century A.D., But there was no Colossian church there. There was no Christian church there through the Middle Ages. And there's only a small group of Christians, evangelical Christians, there today. And that's only been recently. But the spread of Islam crushed out Christianity for a long period of the history of Turkey, Asia Minor, where Colossae was. Right, my point is not to draw moral lessons from uh, <clears throat> what we can't uh, explain from the, the future of this church. My point is to alert us to what Paul is talking about here, namely the substitutionary element in Christianity, is substituting something else for what is genuine Christian truth. Keep meditating upon these verses to understand how the worldly principles draw you around, way and even the counterfeit religious principles draw you away, including mystical religious, higher spirituality principles, higher, and walk in the received truth of the gospel of the apostle and the disciples of our Lord Jesus. That's all I have for this afternoon. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to address them. But you understand that this section is directed against three groups of errorists who are attempting to subvert this congregation. Let's close in prayer then. Father, we do bless you for the apostles' words. And for his warning to the Colossian church as to be on guard against these deviations from the centrality of your Son, our Savior's work and person. We delight in the Son of God himself and would have no other as our Lord and Redeemer. And we delight in what he has done on our behalf, his vicarious work, his substitutionary uh, death on the cross his wonderful resurrection from the grave his being seated at your right hand at the glory at the right hand of glory on high lord as we as we love and delight in this reality keep us true to the faith keep us centered in Christ Jesus as Paul was as the Colossian church is, is invited to help us o oh lord to remain in that blessed union with our head. We who are joints and ligaments of his precious body, indeed, O Lord, help us to remain faithful in our union with Christ. For we plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen.